Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. And this week we have a special guest, Christos Galanis. And he's coming to us from Edinburgh, Scotland. Greetings, Christos. Thanks for coming into the Garden of Doom. Greetings, Jeff. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Uh, I'm going to take a couple moments just to uh, first raise the volume on my speaker. So if everyone hears a ding, that's what that is. Secondly, I'm going to read Christos's um, bio so that you get some background on this very diverse individual. He's an interdisciplinary artist and human geographer. He spent the last 15 years tracking and making visible the various spells through which colonialism, human supremacism, and inanimism, I'm sorry, inanimism inhabit and inhibit relationships, both individually and culturally. In addition to his academic publishing, lecturing, and ethnographic fieldwork, he also brings years of experience teaching workshops on walking, play, performance, kink, and eco-sexuality. He's a practicing animist, and he's a graduate of the Stephen Jenkinson's Orphan Wisdom School, and is soon completing a PhD from the University of Edinburgh, uh, I became acquainted with him through a group uh, that follows or, or is uh, fans or uh, students of Tyson Yunkaporta. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, who is an indigenous uh, Australian. I'm going to call him a philosopher, but that's really too, simplif too simplified. Anyway, um, I, I, I don't think I've even scratched the scratch of being able to explain his stuff um correctly but if you join audible which is not a sponsor of the show and use your one free credit on his book sand talk i don't think you will regret it uh 
Anyway, so Christos, uh, I think we're going to start with animism, but that could take us in a lot of different directions. So uh, again, thank you for joining us and lead away. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Um, I'll actually just say I'm actually in New Mexico. My PhD is in Edinburgh, but oh. I'm, I'm up here in Taos where the forest fires have already started. Oh boy, I got that geography very wrong. I hope that's the least important thing that I bought. Uh, Scotland and New Mexico is almost the same thing. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it looks foggy out there. <laughs> I, well, I, I've lived in New Mexico. I've never lived in Scotland. But, oh, wow. okay. but, I'm, but I'm guessing they're not. But, uh, you know, I have also watched Braveheart and uh, Better Call Saul, so. <laughs> oh, man. I am waiting for the next episode of Better Call Saul. Everyone, oh, everyone is. Great show. See, no matter how diverse people are, great television can unite us. Good scripts. Absolutely. Um... So animism. So I know we connected through the the group that I run on Facebook around um, Sand Talk, which, because you said, I've read it twice now. I made a group on it, and I still, there's just layers and layers and layers. And even then, the author Tyson makes it clear that he's only introducing, like, beginner-level kind of, like, you know, children's kind of stuff that he isn't even allowed to kind of get into the the deeper traditions and rights um, within Aboriginal Australian culture. So it speaks a lot to um, just how different a viewpoint, like a worldview it is. And so what I've been doing a lot through my academic research is almost trying to understand the history and the politics of animism in our culture and Western modern culture, and then to almost be able to translate it and to kind of explain to people like this is kind of how things happen and this is why we you know tend to see reality this way and it's a, actually it's a very unique way of seeing reality i call it inanimism because it's almost easier to to look at inanimism than to look at animism because you know pretty much all our ancestors throughout most of human history around the world would probably define something more or less as animists that's true so the question for me is almost like so what what the fuck happened that we're this outlier, right? Yeah. Well, let's back up for just a second. And then if you could briefly define for the benefit of people who don't already know or maybe think they know and don't have the exact definition, what is animism sort of writ large? So I think at the most simple, animism is perceiving or proceeding as if all beings have personhood and agency. Um, everything from animals to plants to insects, but including, you know, trees, plants, rivers, the weather, um, mountains, you know, all these kinds of things. And that it's not, you know, I mean, we get into theology at that point, but the idea that like all these things have the capacity for connection, for communication, and that because of that, we must proceed as if all these things have agency and we have to negotiate resources and space and territory and power with them. Well, you've probably done a fairly bad job of that, I would I would say. Um, <laughs> it's but, not uh, the happiest history to look into. Yeah, I mean, especially if you consider, you know, grass and sand as having, you know, we literally step on it. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, I think for those who are still grappling with the definition, you know, may, maybe think shamans, maybe think Druids, uh, maybe think, you know, if you're here in, in the Americas, First Nations, if, if you're Asian, I mean, the word anime came from animism, which I think literally means the, to give spirit to or the spirit of uh, yeah. Tengri was an animist religion. 
uh, or a philosophy that was you know spread primarily well not primarily but maybe a lot by the, the Mongols and the other sort of steppe uh, tribes from uh, Far East Asia into you know the, into Europe really um, but a lot of the African uh, original uh, philosophies were animistic so I mean it, it's it's really everywhere and, and of course Tyson's from Australia so you know the indigenous uh, sometimes called Aboriginal uh, peoples there uh, you know a lot of animism there so you know again everything is spirit uh, you know we, we've all we've all been exposed to it whether we know it or not and I would say in some ways we've never left that worldview we just don't consider it to be such you know I would almost consider the economy or the stock market we treat it as a living being that, you know, we, we have all kinds of rituals, ceremonies, supplications too, right? We're always watching what the economy is doing, what the stock market's doing. It, it seems alive in many ways, right? It has its own uh, agency and all this. And so it's, it's a bit more of almost like, imagine it like as an inanimate veneer over top of what to me seems to be reality. Um, and of course, all these cultures that you mentioned would never call themselves animists. They would just say, this is just the way things are, right? right? So the the term animism is quite loaded. Some people prefer to call what I'm involved with new animism to kind of make a break because animism came in the 18th, 1800s when European anthropologists were trying to create like a linear evolution of human religion. And so at the very bottom of that, they would put animism or primitivism and then, you know, polytheism, and then, of course, monotheism, and, you know, eventually science. So this idea that, like, all humans progress from, like, the most kind of basic, simple, primitive religion to the, the peak of human religion, which would be science, right, and truth. Sure, the matrix, God, uh, science is right. the God now. And, um, you know, my problem with a lot of the idea that science or modern culture is this supreme system is that it can't account for most human beings history and experiences right so all these cultures you're speaking of it doesn't deal with them very much it kind of dismisses them or just prefers not to look and be like oh you know people changing into bears that's you know we're not going to deal with that we're just going to measure <laughs> measure and quantify things and declare that that's reality right mm -hmm. so it's it's quite political you know in terms of um describing and explaining what experiences humans can or are allowed to have or what experiences are legitimate right sounds right that's a, yeah i mean uh, yeah you sort of blew my mind with the whole stock market is a living breathing thing and we talked about the constitution as being a living breathing thing i i really thought you were going to go on a much a simpler level is that the you know a lot of the spirits became sort of like di different gods and and some polytheisms be you know were associated with you know, you know, the, the water, the streams, the trees, the, the, this, and then, 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 you know, sort of religion, well, not religions, but Christianity put saints in charge of those things, you know, but, it, but it is, I thought that's where you're going with, we never left it. Um, but you skip straight ahead to, uh, <laughs> to the ghost in the machine or, or, uh, that, uh, you, you should be. Yeah, to, I mean, it yeah. comes up because I've actually, the last couple of years I've been working, I've been consulting a friend of mine who does day trading, here in the States in the stock market. 
and I've been consulting him from an animist perspective because this is what, I mean, he's doing like wave pattern analysis and really looking at this as a living being and he gets signals, he gets all kinds of things. And the more that he's been able to understand this thing as like a living entity, the better he's actually been doing. So there's a lot of different applications in terms of repatterning your understanding of reality. Remind me, we're going to stick a pin in this and I'm, I'm asking you to help me remember this before we sign off. So please, wherever we are, like leave enough time that you think you need to do this. But there's got to be some relationship between what you teach and research and, and, and study and cryptocurrency. Yeah, <laughs> so. definitely. I mean, how do I put this? I have a quote. It's a bit long, but I can bring it up because... Uh, you know, because I teach on animism and I was curious, you know, if you do a Google search, what is animism, what comes up? And uh, one of the biggest, one of the most popular hits is actually a missionary, Christian missionary organization called Ethnos 360. And uh, it's kind of disturbing and pretty amazing that this is what comes up Okay. as a, as a definition of animism. And this will get us deeper into when I say the politics. So it's a little bit long. It's okay. So, um, so this is a missionary group, seems to be pretty popular, pretty large, and their specialty is going after untouched tribes, basically, like their, you know, <laughs> their bonus points are going <laughs> after the last remaining um, tribal peoples that haven't been touched by Western culture or monotheism. So they are right now stomping in the Amazon, ruining things. That's, yeah, so they're raising money and sending people out, you know, to, to get these last remaining people <laughs> You know, no offense to many of your, some of your viewers, but for me, there's a special place in hell for missionaries uh, in terms of um, just going out and imposing your worldview. I don't care what it is, you know, just the idea that you would go out and well, interfere with. Well, the irony is saying there's a special here. place in hell for them. I mean, <laughs> hell, hell is almost, uh, it, okay, never, never mind my rambling. So, yes. No, and it's ironic that, you know, for them, they're doing this work to get to heaven. So it's, yeah. it's a mess. So they describe animism, or animists, as instead of viewing man as the dominant being of creation, the animist sees himself and everything else as on an equal playing field, totally interrelated with every other person or object, and constantly battling for supremacy in life, for every soul for itself. Consequently, his existence becomes one long, fearful game or match of tricking, fooling, deceiving, or appeasing these other souls and spirits through ritual, tradition, sacrifice, and magic. At the same time, these souls are fighting for themselves against him. So it's painting, you know, this picture of like everyone for themselves, everyone's battling each other for supremacy. And then they say, so the animus can never stop fighting, clawing, and striving for his life, his health, his garden, or his future. If he does, all these other spirits will quickly engulf his existence and snuff it out for good. And then here's where, you know, I would say another form of animism comes in and then they say and satan takes full advantage of this misconception that everything has a soul or a spirit he is more than happy to supply the demons to support their beliefs the tribal people's animistic worldview provides the perfect opening for rampant demon activity but through careful thorough bible teaching an animist can gain a proper understanding of the creator the world that he made and how it operates in reality and then slowly as rocks trees Plants, dead people, and dreams become exactly what they are, harmless and soulless, then the souls that really do exist can be focused on, which is theirs. Well, I am only an amateur philosopher, but 
uh, and, and grammarian, et cetera. But that's not a definition. That's more of an opposition statement piece. Right. And this is when I say, like, when I say in anonymism, it's a position. Anonymism is a political position that purports to just be neutral reality, right? Hmm? Said, that's, that's, a, that's a manifesto. Yeah, I agree. That that's the beginning of a position paper. You know, I'm not even going to talk about the conclusions, but but that's certainly not uh, just a, a objective definition. So, how would you counter? What is your counter definition um, as to you know what is this, you know? I, I mean, I know that earlier you said that, that everything has spirit, and that's basically what it is. But and maybe that's just simply the the way to describe it. But uh, how, how do you deal with something like this, or do you even have to? No, I mean, I have to, and this is what I'm trying to do. Within academia, it's a, it's a tightrope, you know, to be someone of European descent and to be arguing these positions. I mean, it's much easier when you're, you know, Tyson Antroporta or from, you know, a recognized indigenous culture to be of modern Eurocentric culture. It's, it's tricky to make these claims, right? You, you almost won't get taken seriously in academia. Well, right and wrong. Um, I, I mean, it, I, I understand what you mean, the practicality of it, you, you know, but, uh, you know, one of the things that struck me most about Tyson's and really resonated is that, you know, he, I think he said he, he met indigenous peoples from Finland who were blonde haired and blue eyed and, you know, and, and, you know, that they live within their communities and within their natural habitats. And they were they were as black as he was because he uses black. Basically, as a description, all indigenous peoples are, are black. That's you know, that's him, not me. Um, but you know, you know. So from his standpoint, you absolutely could. But I totally understand what you're saying to the you know ninety nine percent of the world. You know, the, they would see that otherwise and say, "Hey, well, this is this is just a you know white supremacy. This is just another guy mansplaining to us or or American splaining to us." Yep, and maybe. I'm talking cryptocurrency, let's put a bookmark in uh, in the Sami in Finland because I had actually a similar experience as Tyson when I was in Stockholm and I met some Sami artists and activists and got my mind blown around you know indigeneity and race and race and things like that. But to go back to um, your question of like, I think you're almost asking like, what are the stakes, right? Like, what would maybe my counter position? And the stakes are existential. I mean, if you know when they categorize the things that you, you know, you're supposed to realize are soulless and non-existent. It includes things like dreams. It includes the dead. You know, we could spend the rest of the hour talking about the politics of what it means when you imagine that the dead are annihilated and stop existing <clears throat> once they die. You know, not only what that does for the dead, but what that does for our own perceptions and fears of death and dying, right? Sure. I mean, there's tons there. But I would say, so there's a political where I could say I could fight them, but it's actually, for me, goes down to the grief of, like, what kind of world does that leave us in when the only true beings left in the world are humans and nothing around us matters and nothing has any value other than what humans can make of it for our own uses, right? right. And, uh, I mean, we're living that, right? I mean, I'm here in New Mexico, it's April, and we've already got wildfire season going on. I used to live here 10 years ago, and that was usually July, August, yeah, and I, I mean, and I think the root of a lot of the, we'll call them the, the, the modern religions, are that, you know, the earth is basically for man, man was creating in God's image, and it's basically, uh, 
human supremacy, uh, you know, over everything else. I mean, I, I, you know, this is not a political show. It doesn't try to be, but that doesn't mean the guest doesn't have to be. But, you know, I don't, we're not even talking about white supremacy. We're talking about, you know, humans hold a special place over like cows, you know, and, and dogs and, you know, and then, you know, butterflies, whatever. It doesn't matter. Bees. Um, and uh, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder in your bio, is that what you meant by human supremacy? Yeah. So what I'm tracing is human supremacism, because that's for this is me what, what it comes down to. And, you know, before we got, we went live, we were talking a little bit about, you know, different Bible chapters. And uh, I took a course here at the University of New Mexico on ancient religion and ecology, where my professor just went to town on the book of Exodus as a rewilding narrative. You know, the idea that they had to get out of Egypt, get out of civilization and spend 40 years in the desert to kind of undo that spell, right, of civilization and human supremacism to be able to then found, you know, this new idealized nation. Yeah, well, that that, that would be an interesting uh, take on it. I, I recently did a show with an author who wrote, uh, named Ken Wads, uh, Wadsworth, who wrote a book called UFOs in the Bible, so his take's completely different. That, <laughs> you know, but, it, you know, also the manna from heaven, I mean, it did sound a lot like meals ready to eat, right? You know, you're, 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 you're living on MREs for 40 years. But, yeah, that's an interesting take on it, though. I mean, I guess once they got into Israel, I mean, they sort of <laughs> you know, slew a lot of Canaanites. To... Yeah, it, things weren't ideal once they got there, but <laughs> yeah. the journey was what it was all about. Right, it's, a, it's the journey. Yeah, everyone says the, it's the journey. Everything's about the journey. Um, no, I mean, it's this is, I mean, for, it seems from what of, you know, the things that you're kind of looking at in your podcast and your audience, I mean, these are often the realms, right? The super, the quote, supernatural realms, all these things that if you delve into, you almost don't get taken seriously. And that's, and that's quite political, right? The mm -hmm. idea of who and what you can study, who and what you can talk about or acknowledge. And, you know, for those of us of European descent, at least you're looking at thousands of years of terrorism in terms of, uh, you know, stamping out any last inkling of these kinds of ways. You know, in my in my research in Scotland, I was looking at the ethnic cleansing of the Celtic populations there, and, and it's heartbreaking. You know, there's accounts from the 1600s of communities trying to get to the sacred well that they would go on a pilgrimage to every year, and you literally have like soldiers, um, you know, with clubs and things like that, bar barring their way and beating them back and not letting them get to their sacred wells. And so it's um it's quite violent. It's a quite violent history of kind of terrorizing these practices out of people, while supposedly convincing them that your ways are are supreme, right? Right. Yeah, it's uh, it was assimilation by by violence. My way or the highway, I guess, as uh, you know, cowboys would say. Yeah, and I think for me. You know, in my bio, I mentioned that I, I use walking a lot. I use performance, play, kink, all these things. I think partly because these things are so deep in us that it's really hard to just rationally try to unpack them and change them, right? Um, I'll give you an example. I was teaching an animism workshop in, um, in Totnes in Devon in England, which is already, you know, a pretty progressive kind of hippie town. And we were on the grounds of a really beautiful estate, Dartington Estate, these beautiful gardens and I was sending the participants out to do an exercise where they had to go to a flower and out loud ask it permission to pluck it in order to then offer that flower to another 
being like a tree or the river, you know, so it's not even for yourself, but the key was you had to ask for permission out loud and try to, as much as you could, listen and see if you can get any kind of feeling, you know, from this flower or that flower that it was consenting, because a lot of it is practicing consent. And when I described this, I could tell some of the people already were really uncomfortable, right? Even though they're, again, hippie artists, you know, like this for them, it's not that unusual. But I asked what's going on, and they were like, I, it would be really hard for me to, like, speak out loud to a flower when there's, you know, strangers or those people around. And so we came up with a solution, which was that if you felt uncomfortable, you can hold your cell phone up to your ear and pretend you're talking on the phone to a human so that when you're speaking to a flower, it almost gives you that cover so you don't look like a crazy person. And so people did that. But that's the layers that I'm really interested in is that that part in us in our bodies, that like that terror comes up, that discomfort of being seen doing these things, mm-hmm. right? Even just, because you think the idea of asking a flower for permission to pluck it um, is a quite beautiful gesture, right? Even if you don't imagine that there's anything there on the other end that's that's responding. But the fact that we have this terror of being seen doing these things in public is um, is speaking to the, the layers and layers that I'm interested in coming to unpack more through play, through movement, you know, things like that, ways that you can kind of get out of your head because you've probably noticed that all kids are born like this, right? All kids perceive trees and rivers as alive and animals mm-hmm. and talk to them. And sure. my question would be evolutionarily, why would all children in all cultures be born like this if, uh, if there was no advantage to it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be beyond learning. That's why I they say youth is wasted on the youth. Uh, and I think that's sort of what you're saying is, you know, I doubt my parents who are, you know, in their early 80s, if they ask permission to a flower, I don't think they would care if somebody looked at them and thought, thought that they were, you know, crazy. Yeah, they, they, they just do what they want, you know, right? And then, you know, I'm in my mid-50s, on the lower end of mid-50s. I'd probably only 25% care, you know, if someone thought that was crazy for doing that. Um, yeah. But like, you know, this, but by the time you get to that stage, for most people anyway, you, you sort of have lost the, you're already part of the world as it is, as opposed to the youth where, you know, maybe you could try to change another way. It, it's so weird to me. I'm, I'm not sure how related this is, but I was trying to think like, what caused this? Was it, was it sort of when agriculture went from hunter gatherer to, to agrarian and, and started to say that we, we needed to sort of dominate, you know, more of the land and then just sort of following the animals. That doesn't really, that, that doesn't really make sense. Would it be the Industrial Revolution? Of course not, because that was only 200, 250 years ago. That's way too recent. Um, you know, so the, the rise of sort of the, the the big religions is mostly the last two, 3,000 years. I mean, did they think they were in their kind of Industrial Revolution where that kind of thinking? So, I mean, maybe they were. Maybe they, when they went from Bronze Age to Iron Age, to them that was the same thing as, you know, us on the precipice of the of the uh, the singularity. I, I, I I don't know what, you know, sort of led the, the, the powers that were then into trying to spread that kind of philosophy, theology to the masses to say that we, you know, we own the earth, basically. There's um, and I know people will blame, you know, monotheism. And, uh, and again, because I've actually studied a decent amount of sections of the, of the Torah, the Old Testament, the idea of human supremacism is not 
inherent there. You know, we have the Jubilee year. You have a lot of things that you obviously are meant to counteract human supremacism. So that question, you know, of like what happened, for me, there's, there's really two, two significant points, and I'll try to describe them. Um, one is, is my people, the Greek people, <laughs> in the post-Bronze Age collapse, where you have massive, massive scale of Greek colonization, right, of all the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And one might ask, you know, why, why then, why there? And what I understand, what, what is happening is some cities, like I think, um, uh, it'll come to me when I stop thinking about it. Some cities had like a, a hundred colonies to themselves. Like, I mean, they planted a hundred different colonies. So you just have thousands of colonies popping up all over the place. And what they're doing is trying to carry their language, right? Their religion, their gods from one place to another. Mm -hmm. And what I've come to know is that gods are gods of places, right? Of actual places. So Poseidon, you know, we say Greeks, you know, had Poseidon as the god of the sea. Originally, Poseidon would have been the god of a particular place in the sea, right? And then that gets carried by those people to the shores of Spain, to the shores of, you know, Russia and the Black Sea, I mean, all over the place. And so they're trying to bring home with them, right? And in that way, place becomes erased and you just have this idea of these floating gods that kind of you know become the god of war the god of this the god of that and so gods become displaced gods become homeless in a way and that that's the same time where you have the pre-socratic philosophers who for the first time say what if these myths what if these stories of the gods aren't reality what if there's an underlying uniform natural reality that we can study through rational logic means and develop basically an understanding of the world that doesn't have morality to it doesn't have any kind of exchange necessary right you don't have to do anything it's just there's atoms there's fire there's water there's all these things right and as far as i can tell no culture before that had ever thought of such a thing every culture before that their worldview was shaped by characters, by stories, by gods, by myths, right? By narrative. And so, you know, we credit that as the beginning of science, but I would call it the beginning of inanimism, which is reality getting detached from any context or place, I think, is, is the key. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I think the city might have been Mycenae. It's, um, it starts with an M. Is it? No, it's... um. Uh, Miletus, Miletus, oh, really? the Malaysian school, if you know, like um, an examiner and all the, the pre-Socratic philosophers, they were the first to start, like one of them proposed that atoms, right, that every reality is broken down into these tiny, mm -hmm. indivisible atoms. One guy said it's fire, one guy said it's ether. So they were the ones that kind of tried <laughs> to figure out what's the underlying um, substrate of reality, right? And this is what we're still trying to do with quantum theory, with you know all this stuff, because we're still imagining, right, that somehow underneath there's there's just these objective objects, these things that just exist, and that we don't have any um, relationship to. We don't have any responsibility to, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of this naturalistic worldview where things just bounce around and it's just random and 
and all that kind of thing. And that gets me to when I say the ancient Greeks, and then the second point, of course, is modern science. And um, looking at that, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s especially, I can pull up another quote that I use quite a bit. Um, Francis Bacon, he was the first scientist knighted. And he's alive in the early 1600s. This is the peak of the witch hunts in Europe, um, beginning of English colonization in the Americas. And uh, what he was doing at the time was proposing an entirely different um, method of producing knowledge, what we would come to know as modern science. But you can read his text. It's amazing to actually read what he's imagining because um, it's quite it's quite magnificent, it's quite magical. He imagines that there's a, a high priest council who basically rule on whether things are true or not. And that actually became, uh, what's it called? In London, like the, the uh, Academy of Sciences in London. Like this, you know, these old white men who would meet and just present papers and discuss, you know, what was real and what was not. Right. Didn't they call it natural philosophy before they came up with the word science? It is that. Yep. Yep. Natural philosophers, right? And they're studying nature. So, and this ties into the animism, the missionary quote, right? As you'll see in terms of human supremacism. So this is what he's laying out for a new system of science. And he says, while humility gains us entrance to the study of nature, cruelty is the means by which we reach our end. Mere experience will take us only into nature's outer courts. To come to nature's inner chambers, we must tear it to pieces, constraining, vexing, dissecting, and torturing nature in order to force it to reveal the secret entrances to its treasure chambers. chambers. Only as merciless servants who bind and torture their master to learn the source of his power can we win from nature the knowledge of its hidden forces and operation. On the basis of this knowledge, we can then produce a line and race of inventions that may in some degree subdue and overcome the necessities and miseries of humanity. It's from 1620 in the Organon. I wonder if he's ahead of his time or behind his time. Uh, <laughs> I, I wonder if, if this is, comes into play as to why certain sects, like why the... the Druids were so targeted, or why witches were. I mean, because witches. I mean, the the religion of witch uh, is not all, but generally is Wicca, and Wicca really is a animistic type of religion, theology, philosophy, uh, as is as my primitive understanding what the Druids were, sort of the same. Yeah. So uh, I wonder if that's what made made those two so particularly anathema. I mean, magic slash the occult, animism, you know, then on the other side of it, then equals bad, Satan, dark, you know, it, yeah. it, it sort of became the, the progression of maybe even prevent. I mean, I think now even you say the occult and you think there's something bad and evil when, when the occult simply just means hidden. Well, isn't, isn't everything hidden? Wasn't, wasn't the face of God hidden? Wasn't even the name of God supposed to be hidden? Um, I mean, you know, hidden isn't necessarily bad. I mean, the national security or secrets that are hidden. So I don't know. It's a very successful PR, you know, if nothing else. That's a good way of putting it. And yeah, Jeff, you're actually hitting right on the nail. There's um, what I'm understanding. So this is where things get... It's just fascinating, we're getting these histories. So what Francis Bacon 
Newton, all these people, you know, they were devout Christians. And what they believed they were doing, there's a really great book. I think it's called Adamic Knowledge. This was like the Bible. So they understood that because Adam and Eve had transgressed, that God took away all their knowledge and cast them out right into the wilderness, ignorant. And they consider Adam to be the first scientist because he got to name all the plants and animals. So that's what they see scientists as doing, right? They get to name everything. And so, so three year old. And you know, you have the fall of you know the civilization, Rome, the Dark Ages, and now you have the Renaissance. And what they themselves understood that they were doing, and they write about it, that they were recovering Adamic knowledge, the knowledge that Adam lost. Mm-hmm. And by accumulating all this knowledge, right, by eradicating mystery, by penetrating everything and being able to make it visible and quantify it, we were returning back to God. We were actually recovering our knowledge of God. So this is where, like, you say the roots of science, and it's like the whole roots of science are an attempt to get back to God after we've been kicked out of the house for for being bad, right? (laughs) Right. Um, Ironically, not eating candy. I mean, ironically, eating the thing that's supposed to keep a doctor away, right? (laughs) Um, And so, you you talk about mystery, because I agree, there's something about this that there's an intolerance of mystery, right, of darkness. Like, you want everything to be light, to be in in the light. And um, there's a great teacher, just recently passed away, Maladama Somme from West Africa, from the Dagara people. And he translates our word mystery into his language as the thing that your knowledge cannot eat. That makes sense. Like this idea that mystery is this thing that like your knowledge can't consume, right? And this is, this is our culture. We can't tolerate that, right? We want to rationally know everything. We want to see everything. We have no tolerance for mystery or for shadow or for the unknown or for the occult. As he said, there's a fear there. But, this whole well, show is based on my fear of not being the smartest person in the room, which I, increasingly I realize that I, I won't be with my guests who, who are obviously. Smart. But yeah, it, it's it's my search to try to find things so that I can consume them and and you know understand things because it frustrates me. There's so many things I'm I'm not aware of, whether they're fact fiction or somewhere in between. It yeah. doesn't matter. I just don't know what they are. And you know that we're you know we're we're kin because my I just love learning and reading everything I can about history and all these things. But what I love from this understanding, you know, because you can say, oh, you know, horrible European people. But what I love is have compassion because underneath that is this desire to know God, to know the divine, right? To know something otherworldly, something beyond the mundane that, that fuels this curiosity, this inquiry. And going back to Bacon's quote, you know, you can, you can be disgusted by it and, you know, he basically advocates for tearing nature apart. And again, this is the witch hunts where, you know, women and some men are literally being raped and tortured and torn apart and trying to find the sign of the devil on their bodies, right? There's interesting analogies. But at the end of it, he says that we'll take this knowledge and create inventions which will lessen the misery and suffering of humanity, right? So which which is a noble cause. Sure. But we go back to that question of human supremacism again, where it's like, how much is enough, right? How much will we rape and pillage and destroy and take to lessen our own suffering? 
because at the end of the day, we're going to die at some point anyways, right? We can't avoid that. Well, the, the answer seems to be that, that, that there's almost no bounds at, at this point. And there seems to be a, a small bulwark on the, on the fringes. I mean, as popular as, as anti-climate change is these days, I mean, the, the second gas goes to more than $4 an hour, that, that goes out the window with 70% of the people. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, this idea of you said boundaries, right? And, limits. And, and this is why... And by the way, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but, but by the way, for the audience, I, I, I'm not disparaging anyone. I understand life's a struggle. A lot of people living check to check or... or they're behind check to check is just to get close to keeping keeping current I, I'm not trying to bash anyone or diminish the economic realities and I'm not sure of you know what a better system would be I'm not that smart um, you know I, but I, I do know that 200 or so years ago the poverty rate in the world as judged by you know eurocentric uh, measurements was 90 percent and now it's closer to 10 percent so in some ways there's progress but I, I mean at, at cost and the, the cost seems to be well everything else and this i mean you know speaking of i mean current politics i've found covid fascinating for some of these reasons human supremacism because especially maybe the first what year it was amazing to see what people were willing to do and impose in order to avoid sickness and death right like we we shut down <laughs> the entire world economy to save human lives. And we're still, I mean, I don't know how things are there. Things have pretty much opened up and are back to quote normal here, but it was amazing to watch that for some people, there was no, there's no limit to what was enough to save humans. Right. Mm -hmm. And what became interesting to me was to see certain movements coming up, you can call them conspiracy theories. I'm actually not aligned so much on either side of it. But what was amazing that for a lot of people, like living or surviving wasn't the core value, right? People were willing to risk their lives to be able to go out and see friends or to, to go to a hockey game or all these things and the idea of freedom. And it was, it was amazing to see the politics of like, what's our most important value, right? Mm -hmm. Because for government and for health policy, it seemed that they assumed that everyone wanted to stay alive, <laughs> but it's like at what cost, right? And so it's been an interesting kind of cultural negotiation as we try to figure out what do we most care about? And I've actually been heartened in some ways to see that a fair amount of people actually don't care about their own lives above everything else. And there's other things that they actually care more about. It's one day there will be amazing case studies into that and to try to figure it out. And there'll be a lot of wrong theories and interesting theories. And at some point, someone will figure it out, but I don't know. I think at the, and believe me, I, I am, I'm no statistician, but I think at the, I think it's just people who until it directly affected them, they were probably more cavalier if they tended to be of a particular bent and people who, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who are sort of naturally germaphobic anyway. And then like, most of us probably didn't feel too strongly one way or another. We just want to, right. you know, get along and, and, you know, sort of adhere to our social contract, you know, to just generally be polite. And if it's, if it's help, you know, same reason to put on a seatbelt. We don't really want to, but, you know, we sort of have all agreed we're going to do it for the betterment of all and fine. Um, anyway, so yeah, but it, it certainly was interesting to see. And 
I don't know. I would be more heartened like you were if the if the reason was for something other than it wasn't like a rage against the machine. Fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. You know, that that seems to be more like if the government tells us to do it, it's about control. And my response to that is, yeah, the government does want control, but the control they want is for you basically to obey most laws pay your taxes and buy shit you don't need. That That's really, that's really what governments want. They, they, need, they need revenue, um, you know, and basically order. I mean, and keep, keeping your, your houses and shutting down the economies does not benefit any government in the short term. But then again, the response to that was, well, this is not a short term play. This is part of a long term plan that's millennia old. So an economy being shut down for two or five years, that's nothing. That's not even the blink of an eye in this plan. How do I answer that? I can't. And I think, you know, and I, for me, what's also frustrating, part of it is like it's framed as a zero sum game, right? It's like it just becomes two party system, like our side versus your side. We're going to fight and we're going to we're going to win. And, you know, the problem with humans is like in order to survive every day, we need to kill things. We need to consume things like that's literally you know, everything we eat is a living being that we're eating every piece of energy that we use to, you know, heat or cool our homes, drive our cars is coming from life, right? Sure. Whether, you know, ancient life that's become, you know, fossil fuels or, or the carrot that you eat out of your garden, like we need to consume, like that's the name, everything does, everything eats, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the framing is not that humans are a cancer or humans are this horrible thing and we have to like stop living or stop consuming because you know if we do we die like there's not really much gray area there it comes back to that you know that question of like a consent and negotiation which is that the same way you know if you and i have a a long-time friendship it might be unspoken but there's going to be some kind of long-term balancing that we're going to be doing right like i'm going to help you move to your new apartment, you're going to drive me to the airport at five in the morning when I have to catch that flight to be at, you know, a loved one's bedside while they're dying. Like there's that exchange, right? And so all the things The, the, the that, Seinfeld episode with Keith Hernandez. <laughs> it's like, so all these things that, you know, monotheists or scientists consider to be primitive and all these dances and costumes and all this stuff what they don't get is that the main almost like technology or the main gift that humans have to give is our, is beauty is creativity, right? Is expression, song, dance, ritual, all these things. So that when you take something, whether, you know, it's apples from your apple tree, you give something back, some kind of offering, you know, that can be a song, something like that. And that, so to me, that is, animism from a practical standpoint right the Mm -hmm. idea that you maintain relationships just as you and i would maintain a friendship just as you and you know a partner would maintain a friendship because it's a shitty friendship if one person's only taking and the other person's only giving right absolutely and this is what we're doing and so you so the thing is right if we're let's say you know here where water is everything we're taking water if we simply see water as this newtonian physical, you know, billiard ball atom just kind of rolling down from the Colorado Rockies and we just take whatever we want rather than being like, this is life. This is literally our fucking life that's coming to us from the mountains every day that we're drinking and is in our food. 
how do you give back? How do you, how do you reciprocate, right? How would you maintain a friendship if this was a friend? So that would be all the seasonal festivals, right? We just had Beltane here yesterday in Taos, a big celebration, which is, you know, the beginning of spring, all these things. And so all these ceremonies, all these rituals, all of this was part of a system of mutual feeding, mutual nourishment. And on top of it, it's really fucking fun. It's really fun to come together with your friends and your family and dress up and put on costumes and, you know, learn dances and songs from your elders that have been going on for thousands of years. And it gives meaning and purpose. And so that when your end of days do come, which they will, you know, at some point, you even see that as an exchange, right? Because you've been given all this life and you're dying and your body going back to the earth is now feeding other things as well. So you're part of this perpetual system, you right. know? So that question of like almost what, how do I counter the missionary perspective that humans are alone and supreme? It's like, why would humans ever want to be supreme? Why would you not want to be part of everything and, you know, be enmeshed in everything that's ever been and ever will be, you know, to me, that's actually a much more, um, I don't want to say hopeful, it's just healthy fucking perspective, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the balance has been completely cracked. When it started cracking, I don't know, but the, but there's no balance, and I'm, and I'm hardly a part of the solution at all. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I consume all that much more than anyone else, and, and you know, probably less than many, but that doesn't hardly makes me a hero. But if, you know, if I listen, if I want to put it trite without the underlying thought being trite, in, in the real story of our recent history, and by recent, I'll say 5,000 years, humans equal Ultron from the MCU. I mean, we're, we're, basically, we're basically playing the role. So if you thought Thanos was a bad guy or a good guy, yeah, 50% ain't far enough. The, you're, we're going full Ultron on, on, on the Earth. Um, I don't know how to reverse it. I don't know how to find balance. I, I don't know how you do that with uh, going, you know, going towards 8 billion people. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think, you know, sending people to Mars and Ganymede and Eros and rinse and repeat is, is really a long, is really a, a solution. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, let's get a little bit less philosophical, perhaps, or maybe just as philosophical. And I don't know if you know the answer to these questions, but as you were talking and as we're trying to tie sort of the, you know, the more uh, monotheistic religions, I'm wondering if there is some tie to animism that, that survives. So like, the fox and the coyote always seems to be like the trickster animal. Is there is there something in in animism that that led to that belief that that pervades? And and just to, as a spoiler, I'm going to the snake next. So, you know. <laughs> well, let me go back to what I described. You know, going back to ancient Greece and the colonization, right? Of trying to bring gods and transplant them all over the place. I would have to ask, what context, right? What's the situation? What culture? What place are we talking about, fox and coyote? That's a good. Well, uh, let's say North America, you know, First Nation. This is interesting because you're right. Because in Tyson's, he talks about emu sort of almost as the, the agent yeah. of chaos. And yeah. and a turtle was in another context. And there was, and echidna was, was I don't know, almost like the, I don't know. I, I, obviously, I need yeah. to do this again. But, uh, but I, I know what you're saying. It's like in most cultures, it would seem, and again, I haven't studied all cultures. I'm sure there's exceptions. But 
there seems to be some kind of trickster character, right? Mm-hmm. Something that kind of comes in and fucks things up and is always trying to kind of, um, what was that? <laughs> like cause like there's like the the, the chaos of the but like almost like almost sort of good natured ish like the, the fox like coyote and like but with mm-hmm. inherent evil is like the snake. So here's I'm curious. So I I know that it's almost there's a fad around trickster and everyone talks about trickster and it's I um for my podcast a couple of years ago I interviewed a friend and elder. Um, she's Dine, her Navajo, Pat McCabe. She's right here in New Mexico. And I was asking about um, Trickster in her cosmology and her people's cosmology, the Dine. Because it's Trickster in their cosmology is, is dark. I mean, it's a, it's a dark figure. And what Trickster does, it's interesting. Trickster is limited in that he cannot intervene in our world directly. He mm-hmm. can't um, change anything. All he can do is deceive us and tell us lies. And those lies are always about creating division between us, right? So that's, that's all he can do. All he can do is just tell us lies. And then it's up to us when we act on those lies and create divisions through all the isms and all these kinds of things. So that's the role of Trickster. But then I asked Pat, I was like, why is Trickster doing this? Like, what's Trickster's motivation? Why, you know, that's that's a pretty shitty thing to be doing all the time, right? Right. And she shared that in their cosmology, Trickster is actually not of this world. It came from another world, a world that was even more beautiful than ours. And that world was destroyed. And it came into our world. And it's so envious of the beauty of our world. It's so almost like grief-stricken by the reminder of what it's lost, that it wants to destroy our world. Is that perpetual or will is it just going through one of its stages of grief? That's all I got so far, you know, in terms of what I've been able to, but you know, it's, um, this is when I say the difference between myth, right? What most cultures did. And then what happened in ancient Greece, where you start looking for a naturalistic um, proof, or right? This underkind objective reality. To me, it's so much more, I mean, oh my God, how many verbs come up? Like heartening, exciting, inspiring to be living in a world where this story gives you agency and meaning, right? And, you know, like there's these forces at play and you can understand this character trickster that's doing this shitty thing, but also you can have compassion because it lost its world, right? Right. But again, there's that homelessness. Like there's something about displacement. And... You know, looking at, let's say, Aboriginal Australian culture, Tessinyan Kaporta, the fact that they were able and still able to survive on that desert continent for, what, 60,000 years, mm-hmm. their cosmology, to me, that means that they were on to something, right? Because European culture has been there for a couple hundred years, and, and where are we at, you know, here in North America? It's, it's a mess. And so going back, I'm going back, but shifting to if we want to call them myths or narrative understandings of reality and cosmology where everything has meaning everything has purpose and relationship um seems to me to almost be the most rational way to proceed i think that's what i've come to through through my research and my teaching and um i have an upcoming course on animism that i'm launching and it's a lot of this kind of stuff a lot of like games exercises 
um, a regular walking practice where you walk your neighborhood or your land um, and come into relationship in ways that like are unexpected, right? I'm not dictating what's going to happen. You know, you're there in Baltimore. If you went out on an hour walk every day, you know, what encounters are you going to have? What's going to, what's going to approach you? What's going to catch your attention? What relationships are going to develop, right? Mm -hmm. These are things that are not in our control. And so a lot of it is about just being open to the world and having a practice of wonder and awe and openness and being willing to be affected, willing to be touched by, uh, by the non-human. Do you, what are, are some of the distinctive features, uh, like the compare and contrast of certain of the, um, I don't know, more well-known animistic, um, belief systems or is it, is that too hard of a question? Um, like what's the difference between like Tengri and Druids? I think, um, it's a good question. I mean, the similarity I think is that it's the perception that they're going to call them gods or beings or all these spirits that are part of reality. Right. Um, but what's amazing is like, when I say like local and specific, I was speaking to an Algonquin elder up in Ontario when I was there, which is where I'm from. And he was describing how the Algonquin, when you enter into, um, it's a Sundance ceremony, you enter, let's say clockwise, whereas South in upstate New York, like for the Mohawk, you enter counterclockwise. And so they can attend each other's ceremonies, right? But he won't dance in their thing because for him, the way it's prescribed is to do this dance clockwise. And so when you say like to compare, I would say what it comes down to is almost like what are the protocols and ceremonies that are given by that place or by that land, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the shores of the Great Lakes are going to give different protocols and ceremonies and songs than, you know, the mesas of the high desert of New Mexico, for example. And so I would say if you looked at these cultures, which I haven't studied in, you know, in detail, what you'll probably find is that they resonate with the land, what is needed there, right? There's, if there's mountains, it's probably going to be a lot about mountain worship. If there's a lot of rivers, it'll be about river worship. And so you're basically interacting with what is. And this is why I have a, when people talk about, you know, being pagan or Wicca or, you know, trying, because a lot of this has been a revival of Celtic, mostly Celtic traditions. These are from, you know, Germany and England and all these things. And to try to transplant them into the deserts of New Mexico, I get the intention and certainly, you know, try as opposed to not trying. But it's also important to connect with what's actually here and what the land here needs, right? Right. Like it just doesn't, you know, it wouldn't make sense to do like a spring Celtic ceremony in Australia in the fall. <laughs> like it's just, there's no point, right? Right. The gray wolf, you know, you can't, can't just change it into the coyote. You can't just change the bear into the mountain lion. You can't change yeah. the, the the evergreens right. into the, the trees that are more native to New Mexico, though, I, I guess in the mountains, maybe it gets yeah. similar. And it changes, right, Jeff? Because I don't, you know, I mean, the trees that are there in Maryland probably changed over the last hundred years. And even what Native Americans there were doing has probably changed among them and probably needs to change going forward, right? Like it's all these things is changing and it always has to be in 
relationship. And I would say that's what's most important, right? We talked about Japan before we got on about anime. And there's an interesting theory about Japan, which is that they were never really colonized. Mm-hmm. It's, one of the, it's one of the few places in the world that wasn't colonized by European powers. And because of that, because they had the underlying Shinto, like animism tradition, they were able to keep their worldview and take, you know, from our culture, what was useful for them. And this is why you have such an amazing, weird culture where, you know, the anime and all this stuff, everything is just so alive and, and weird. But for them, that's, that's still their reality, right? Mountains and rivers still have spirits. All these things have spirits. And yet they can, you know, be designing computers and flying airplanes and all these kinds of things. It's just part. It's just part of the normal. Yeah, I, I have to. I haven't made my way far enough east there. Not, not on purpose. It's just. It just seems to be. It's progressing more methodically. Uh, but there's not a method to it. It's just the way. It's just random. Um, how are you doing on time? Where are we at? Let's do like three or four minutes. Just transition. If we want, anything else we want to touch upon? Well, let's get to those pins. Uh, Sam, I think you said Samism and cryptocurrency. I didn't want to skip the pins, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're gonna to have to come back again, and we're gonna to have to we're gonna to have to hit on some more yeah. specifics. But this, this is fun. Good. This was like the uh, meta. I well, you know, I get there's you know here in the states, identity politics is kind of what's been the name of the game now for a while. And I was in Stockholm in Sweden for a conference, and while there, there was a group of Sami. And so Sami are the indigenous nomadic reindeer hunters of Northern Finland, Norway, Sweden. And they presented a video. And in that video, it was, um, it was quite depressing. They were describing the crisis in their youth who are, you know, massive like levels of suicide, self-cutting, substance abuse, depression, all these kinds of things. And coming from Canada, where I'm originally from, I was like, wow, this, this is describing Native American culture. Like, these are the exact same issues. And yet, these are like whitey white European Scandinavian people who don't look any different from anyone else, you know, here in, in their country. How, like, what's going on here? So after the presentation, I went up to the, the two women, the Sami artists, and I was like, look, like, I, you know, I'm sorry if this sounds really ignorant, but how does anyone know that you're Sammy? Because you guys just look, look Swedish, like Swedish people. And they were like, yeah, you know, there's some things like our hair is a little bit darker. Our last names are of a certain type. And we wear a lot of silver jewelry to ward off evil spirits. People can kind of tell. They're like, but no, like walking on the street, you won't be able to tell. But like, but people know, like, you know, you can tell the difference. And so for me, that was a big wake up moment where I realized that, you know, we call racism is not only about, you know, melanin skin levels and physiology, that you can have the exact same issues with people that look as white as anyone in Europe. And so that's why I was interested in looking at the relationships, right? Because they're nomadic reindeer hunters, they need huge swaths of land. Government doesn't like people moving around all the time, right? They like you to get a nice mortgage and stay put and and die there. Um, so it really brought up this question of like, you know, identity and indigeneity and animism because they're animists and they're white. And so for me, that gives me hope that you don't necessarily have to be born into a, you know, Native American tribal lineage 
to be able to start practicing animism, right? Because what actually matters is the relationship with the place, with the land. You obviously want to be respectful and not appropriate, you know, things that um, are not freely given to you. But, and also, you know, it's, it's hard for me. I mean, my people were colonized by, you know, monotheism 2,000 years ago. It's ground zero for Christianity in Greece. Can I recover, you know, the traditions from 2,000 years ago? I mean, probably not likely. And it's great if I can, but I think what's most important is to proceed and to have these kinds of relationships with, with places. And so I, just, I get really frustrated with the kind of racializing of indigeneity or animism and this idea that people of European descent don't belong anywhere and don't have any practices or traditions through which to connect to place. Yeah, I mean, everybody's from someplace. Um, yeah. You know, and I think if you look enough in history that there's very few places that haven't been colonized or oppressed or ravaged at some point in time. Some are certainly worse than others, and some are obviously more recent than others, uh, yeah. which often seems to be the, the, you know, sort of the end all and the be all of some discussions. Anyway, that's not fun at all. What about, um, what about cryptocurrency, our other pin? Because I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah, no, no worries. Cryptocurrency, I'm fascinated by it. I actually got into it at a good time last year and did fairly well, so I, maybe I'm biased. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, it's, again, it's it's not real, right? Right. And yet, I mean, fuck, what's the impact of money on our lives, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even tell you how much I lost yesterday. There was a big drop yeah. yesterday. I mean, money's not really real either, except that all the governments agree that that it basically is and, and adheres to some sort of standard within some acceptable, you know, margin right. of error, you know, based on the translations. And so I don't know, like, do you, I mean, it seems to me that there's certain people that have better relationships to money than other people, right? You can call them lucky, but some people, it's just, you know, the same way some people connect with horses really intensely. Some people connect with money really intensely, right? There's like, there's a quality of relationship there. You're giving the spiritual, so the so Warren Buffett is a very spiritual man in his own way. Is he? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Seems to be good with money, or, or at least the stock markets. Well, it's what what is money? Money to me is it's relationships and agreements, right? People call it energy, but I'm like energy, like it's agreements, right? It's relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, the mm-hmm. whole premise of cryptocurrency, right, is to take the most central relationship of money, which is, how would you call it? Like backing it up, like making it legitimate, right? That it's backed by something and making that a supposedly random, you know, computerized process that nobody controls. But somebody like built it and this, this blockchain. Right? As if that's and the yet, answer. What's a blockchain? Don't worry about it. It's a blockchain. Blockchain's yeah. blockchain. Right. And yet like there are physical servers somewhere, you know, right. sucking a lot of energy up and, you know, a lot of coal power, which was living beings. And so I'm like, cryptocurrency is the bodies of dead organisms from millions of years ago that's recirculating and becoming new things, right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's well, and if you believe that everything is energy, which, I mean, an agreement is just a positive energies, you know, shaking each other's metaphysical hands. Uh, we're all yeah. stardust. So, I mean, when people say this isn't natural, how can something be natural, unnatural and exist? We, we took natural things and mixed them together. So, you know, you can I get... I, I, don't, I, 
wouldn't say it's unnatural, but it, it is almost, again, we're talking about limits and boundaries earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what happens when we take the decomposed, you know, bodies of plants from tens of millions of years ago, rip them out of the depths of the earth, burn them and spew them up into the air. I'm not saying it's unnatural, but it's a, it's a huge shift in balance of energy and material, right? And bodies. And, um, as you can tell, things aren't going well from a certain perspective. Yeah. No, Um, it's all part of a closed system. You can't, it's not bad. I'm not going to say, you know, because like this, this is possible, but if we care about life continuing on this planet, then how do we, um, how do we balance it? And that's, you know, that's the thing that I'm grappling with is like, we need to kill, we need to consume to be alive. Life is wonderful. We all would prefer to, you know, to stay alive for as long as we can in general. And yet, how do we, how do we pay back? How do we be in, in consent? How do we be in reciprocity? Yeah, those are, I mean, I think that's sort of what sustainability is trying to accept. Yes, we need to kill to survive. Uh, and we're entitled to survive too, but how do you do that with the with the least adverse impact, you know, on on the environment? Um, but you and I aren't going to answer this now. Permaculture. We did an episode on permaculture. We the show. I think the episode forty six was called Garden of Hope, uh, and that permaculture seems to be a pretty viable solution. Um, you know, at least towards that. You know, it still accepts the premise that the earth is man's domain, but you know, you, sometimes you can't fight city hall. Um, you know, maybe others will or should or could. Uh, but I thank you for your time. I hope you will come back and uh, uh, we can explore, you know, maybe some more, uh, you know, we can look at Japanese animism and maybe other parts or sort of do some comparative and delve into the philosophy yeah. again. As you can tell, I can be distracted easily and and, and follow any squirrel you give me. Uh, I don't know. It's good. I was just thinking of uh, Marie Kondo, you know, that show where she cleaned people's homes and we could go into that because it's a, uh, I was like, wow, animism on uh, primetime TV. This is fascinating. You know, that people are opening up. I, do you know that show? I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, she comes into like rich white people's homes. It's a Japanese woman and she like helps them kind of organize all their belongings. But um yeah Marie Kondo it's it's fascinating because she's an animist and she's actually you can call it feng shui but she's actually kind of finding out what the house needs she communicates with the house you know where which spaces feel good which spaces don't what things need to be moved it's um oh yeah I'm gonna do a show on feng shui at some point my my fiance La Sicaria does uh, feng shui and yeah, she does it in there. So every now and then she's moving bowls of water around and uh, buying things that yeah. are in pairs and putting them in, you know, in different orientations during different seasons. And, yeah, yeah and that, that, that's animism, I would say, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I call her a shaman. I call her my own shaman. Sometimes I call her a bruja. It's, it's, it's all the same, but I call her Lassa, but she's famous for being La Sicaria, which is just my, you know, little joke. Totally not a joke. It's real. Um, La Sicaria, what does that translate as? Well, Sicario is a hitman for the cartels. Sicario would be the feminized version of that. Okay, okay I don't know that. Don't yeah. Know that I, yeah, La Sicaria, the hit woman. So <laughs> my private security, my private everything. She's also the editor of the show. But, um, Jeff, can I just say if anyone wants to get in touch with me? Please. Yes, absolutely. Facebook, Facebook's the most consistent, just Christos Galanis. You can find me on, on Facebook. And then uh, my website should be up in the next week or two, christosgalanis.com. 
and uh, I'll be launching an animism course and I also do like one-on-one consulting work with people from an animist perspective, things like that. Yeah, this stuff is deep. So folks, if you want to get deep and you want to study, contact Christos. He's very responsive. He's all, he also runs the uh, Facebook group for uh, Tyson Yonkaporta's group, Sandhawk. A lot of interesting stuff there as well. So anywhere else they can support you? No, those would be the main places. I'm, I'm shitty at social media. so. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, but I keep trying. Um, yeah. what's, your, what's your podcast? Is it active? No, it was called The Donkey and the Bridge. Um, which is an interesting take. I've worked a lot with donkeys and donkeys don't like crossing bridges. So it's about <laughs> how to negotiate with, uh, with non-human beings, with stubborn non-human beings in a way that's, uh, that's mutually supportive. Um, you know, right now I've been, I'm been focusing on finishing my PhD. Hopefully I'm done this summer and then looking at kind of launching some more things. Great. Well, we'll maybe schedule something for the fall after you're done with all of that stuff, leave you alone during that stuff. But I thank you again. I can't thank you enough for, for doing this. And please don't be a stranger. And I really appreciated your time and expertise tonight. Okay, great. Thanks, Jeff. I really enjoyed talking to you and uh, going to all these different places. Great. Thanks a lot. All right, folks. So we just uh, said goodbye to Christos and we wish him well in his PhD studies. Uh, we also want to thank the good folks that power us. Um, obviously, the mighty, mighty PwC. You can check them out at uh, pwc.network.com, and you can like and subscribe. You'll hear me on lots of different shows. Um, and also our good friends at the Wrestling Soup Network. If you go to Wrestling Soup Network and subscribe to the Hammerlock Hangover, you'll get that show this show and its cousin show garden views which does not enjoy its own feed it, it's only attached to garden of doom um so check all that stuff out support our friends uh, always a special always i i forget to do this all the time but special shout out to the drew yari show and drew yari always extremely supportive of of the show even before i even knew him and started uh, working with him on some of his shows so thank you to drew shout out to him um so check out all the stuff, support it. Uh, and I would love it if you guys would rate and review this podcast, share it with your friends. Um, and if you have a chance, actually write a review on Spotify and Apple. Um, also, I am recording this show um, on uh, May 1st, uh, but uh, the show probably will drop a little bit later on because one, I overbook and two, because uh, Christos has some stuff that he's, that he's working on that he wants uh, me to hold it for a little bit. So we're going to drop it when he says to drop it, um, which actually works out well because that means it's going to be closer to the NACON conference. So I would encourage all of you to think about buying tickets to see the NACON conference remotely or in person if you're in or near the UK or want an excuse to travel there. And that's at HTTPS colon backslash backslash capital A, capital A, capital C, O-N dot Eventbrite, which is capital E, uh, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot C-O dot U-K. So it's C-O not com. So nacon.eventbrite.co.uk. 
I am part of that conference. We, you've heard lots of uh, speakers uh, from that conference on this show, and you'll hear plenty more as well. But that includes uh, Andrew Goff, who's been on the show three or four times. Um, obviously, Dr. Reverend Parry, uh, Heather Arnold, uh, Reverend Jim Williamson. Um, so, uh, among others, I don't want to keep going and forgetting other people's names. So, thanks to everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you found this valuable and informational. We're definitely have, going to have Christos again, uh, hopefully many times. We'll join our extended family. God, I'd like to have a show with him and uh, Luke uh, Ironside um, on the same show and, and maybe a couple other people who are way smarter than me. And maybe I'll just sit back and shut up and listen to them talk. Uh, all right. Thanks, everyone, for coming into the Garden of Doom. Hear you next week.